Hello and welcome. These are some sermons given by Monsignor Rosito from the years 1995 to the year 2016. Enjoy. Today is the first Sunday in Lent, and the epistle is taken from St. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Brethren, we entreat you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, in an acceptable time I have heard thee, and in the day of salvation I have helped thee. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We give no offense to anyone that our ministry may not be blamed. On the contrary, let us conduct ourselves in all circumstances as God's ministers, in much patience, in tribulations, in hardships, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleepless nights, in fastings, in innocence, in knowledge, in long sufferings, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in unaffected love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, with the armor of justice on the right hand and on the left, in honor and dishonor, in evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet truthful, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as chastised but not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet enriching many, as having nothing yet possessing all things. And the Holy Gospel is taken from the Gospel according to St. Matthew, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. At that time, Jesus was led into the desert by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If thou art the Son of God, command that these stones become loaves of bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Not by bread alone does man live, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if thou art the Son of God, throw thyself down, for it is written, He has given his angels charge concerning thee, and upon their hands they shall bear thee up, lest thou dash thy foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, It is written further, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he said to him, all these things I will give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, The Lord thy God shalt thou worship, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. So far the words of this day's holy gospel. Be gone, Satan. For it is written, The Lord thy God shalt thou worship, and him only shalt thou serve. The words taken from the gospel of today's Holy Mass. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. <laughs> My dear friends in Christ, we said that we are going during Lent to talk about sin, the nature of evil, and our duties in the face of temptation. But 
Today we're going to begin by considering a very important lesson. It's the last lesson, actually, in the booklet that we have prepared so far. More pages will be added eventually. But this is the section on sanctifying grace. It is the mystery of mysteries, you might say, because it is the very essence of what the redemption is all about, of what the promise of God was in the sharing of his divine happiness in the beatific vision and eternal happiness with God in heaven forever. But we know that um, the obstacle to sanctifying grace is sin, and that is why this subject is so important for us in the practice of our religion, in our sense of consciousness, in our duties to God. And today we come face to face with the subject of temptation. We've touched on it before. And particularly the graphic examples of our Lord in his combat or his exchange with Satan. Notice, when Satan comes, he doesn't come in the form of the drama of the exorcist, with all the horror and uh, supernatural phenomena. But he comes quietly and proposes to our Lord, who after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, being hungry, with a simple proposal. If you are the Son of God, command that these stones be turned into bread. They're hungry. Here's a chance now, as the Son of God, to uh, feed yourself by a miracle. And the words of our Lord combat this proposal which doesn't on the face of it seem so terrible a temptation why not you've done your duty now take advantage of the power that you have and turn these stones into bread and our Lord says not by bread alone does a man live but by every word that comes from the mouth of God you know our blessed mother hit this theme earlier when she told the um, attendants at the marriage feast do whatever he tells you this is the theme this is the theme of our Lord's life to do the will of God not by bread alone does a man live but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God when you stop and consider history and life in general, what is the burden of living? It's very simple. The burden of living is to work to eat. Every day you get up and you have your day's work ahead of you. And what is the final conclusion? Ultimately, you might say, though it's shuffled in with a lot of things, but sit down and eat the end of the day or at the, for breakfast for lunch for supper you sit down and you eat to maintain your strength to grow to develop and to perform your duties now if men didn't have to eat believe me they would not work in the garden of paradise they didn't have to work we wonder what did they do with all their time well they must have studied the wonders of nature uh, they were more students than anything because God provided them with an orchard of all the fruit they could eat they didn't have to till the soil until after the fall in the sweat of thy brow shalt thou earn thy bread until thou returnest to the earth from which thou were taken for dust thou art and unto dust thou shalt return the theme of Lent but 
when man has satisfied himself with food after laboring for it, what's the next move? Any place. That's the next thing, recreational, sports, entertainment. You might say, therefore, you have these two levels of life. First, survival to maintain life. Believe me, we don't have to worry too much in this wonderful land of plenty. We work and we have our food. We just take it for granted. And we go on to other things. But really, if we had no food, we would get very hungry. And indeed, we would work. We would strive to get something to eat. Even if it wasn't very palatable, but we would have something that we would work to eat for survival. And this is the lot of the poor. They work hard, uh, very menial work to get a crust of bread, or a can of beans or something in order to survive. It's a struggle. But after survival, then the next level is to make the best of life. And that's to enjoy life. There's where the entertainment, where the sports comes in, where the distractions that we fill our empty time with um, finds man very active in uh, the distractions of life. Television, sports, entertainment, uh, parties. Uh, that's the next level that we naturally tend to go into. Take children, for example. Uh, they have their homework to do. They have their chores to do. But the food is provided for them, and the next thing they do is they start playing. It's almost spontaneous in children to play. And adults are not very far removed from being children. They, too, in one form or another, uh, begin to play. Now, where does religion come in on all of this? Religion comes in through it all, or as a sort of an appendix, uh, an add-on. And many people make uh, religion a comfortable thing. They strive to find a religion, or the way of religion, that is not too demanding. And here we have the temptations coming in now. Uh, command these stones be turned into bread. If we had that power to turn stones into bread, believe me, we wouldn't work. But our Lord says, not by bread alone does a man live, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. In other words, what is your duty? What are your obligations? What's your state in life? What are your responsibilities? That is the word of God for you. And you don't take the shortcuts. You don't steal bread. You don't uh, steal money. Uh, you don't uh, uh, belabor others for the work that they do that you leech off of them. You know, we must practice charity for those who are destitute, for those who are handicapped. We help them. But we don't just give them a free ride. We help them as far as necessary, and we expect them to pick up and do what they can at that point. So, not by bread alone does a man live, but by doing their duties. And if they must receive because they have no way of otherwise getting food, then they receive of the food in all humility and in charity, and God blesses the giver to those who need to receive, and God blesses the receiver as well in the charity of those who give to them. But we don't take shortcuts. That's important then in the face of uh, our duties by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do 
your duty. As we say, you translate that into you do what is the right thing to do. You don't take advantage. You don't uh, ignore responsibilities. You don't take it because somebody is going to give you a reward or you're going to be praised or feel satisfied. But you do it because it's the right thing to do. Sometimes it's a hard thing to do. Not change stones into bread, but the hard way is go out and work now. You've fasted, you're hungry, now go and earn the bread that you're going to feed yourself with. A little extra, and you will be doing God's will. And that is the bread of life. And then the devil takes him up a little higher. Not on the flat ground, but he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. Cast yourself down. Something spectacular. Well, it says in scripture, the angels will take charge of you lest you dash your foot against the stone. If you're a just man, the son of God certainly, uh, why not appear in the presence of the people suddenly, miraculously, and they will say, how astounding, this is the Messiah, let's follow him. And our Lord says, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God, not referring to himself as God, but he should not as a servant of God tempt God to do something extraordinary, to work a miracle because it's expected of God. How often we have that temptation, a little subtle, but not as subtle as the first one. And so you don't do anything against reason. And we say the rule is we live with reason guided by faith. We don't take chances. You don't expose yourself to danger saying, though, I've said my prayers, now God will take care of me. Though St. Christopher Medal uh, is not a miraculous uh, uh, body armor of one kind or another. It's something that reminds you of your duty to God and the care that you must take. And outside of that, the protection of God will bless you and help you. Not without reason, however. And so he takes him to the third level, shows him all the kingdoms of the world, the very high pinnacle of the mountain. What a vantage point that must be. And what is the temptation? All these things I will give you. Falling down, you worship me. And the response is begone, Satan. God only shalt thou worship, and him only shalt thou adore. So we have the stark contrast that brings out this, who's in charge? Now the devil was in charge in proposing these temptations. And our Lord responds with each temptation with a countermeasure. And this is the nature of the fall of man. The devil comes with a proposal. Unfortunately, Adam and Eve didn't respond properly. Begone, Satan. God only shalt thou worship. Him only shalt thou adore. But you shall be as gods. And this was a proud uh, temptation, an enticement. When they saw the fruit pleasing to behold, then they took and they ate. Not so Christ. They wouldn't even eat the bread that he could have had changing it from the stones on the desert. So, what is the theme then of life? To do God's will. And how is that translated? Well, different levels, different degrees of subtlety, but only the will of God. So it's not to earn the bread to survive by, sometimes you may have to starve in order not to offend God. And this is the quid pro quo, as we say, the exchange in life. Uh, you do this and you'll get that. 
But the this being evil, you may not do in order to get that. So the end does not justify the means. And this is very important in morality. You may have a good purpose, but the means to that purpose cannot be evil. You cannot steal to give to the poor. It's a good thing to give to the poor or the needy, but not in an unjust manner. And so in our lives, likewise, we cannot do evil. We cannot commit sin for any reason, especially if the sin is intrinsically evil. Save the life of a mother. So you have a horrible dilemma that a mother who is to be delivered of her child cannot do so and both child and mother will die unless you kill the child and save the life of the mother. Doctors do that routinely if that's the ultimate dilemma. But before God in the service of God, we cannot take the life of an innocent being. Say, well, Father, both are going to die. Why not save one? This is beyond our control. God has allowed this dilemma to arise, and it's a test then of our service of God. Whom shall we serve? So we take the easy way, say, well, it's unreasonable to let both die, but can we do something intrinsically evil to kill the child? To do so. This is the dilemma of morality, and so in a difficult case, we take the safer course, rather than offend God. Now, our Lord could have avoided his crucifixion very easily, but he didn't. He let the course go and he was crucified. Unnecessarily. He was a just man. But he went to his death willingly. And so we have dilemmas in our lives. Not by bread alone does a man live. I must feed my family. I must do this in order to survive. I must do something evil. I must take another person's life. If it's self-defense, there's an equality there that permits that. But you cannot murder somebody in order to, say like a hitman, uh, to earn some... Um, living funds. Uh, you cannot do something intrinsically evil. And the church has a wisdom that's detached from the emotion of immediate problems. and says this is the service of God, not the service of man. Because in the service of man, then the devil enters in and takes over. And these are problems that enter into large dimensions of worldwide uh, effects. And we are going to have to face these decisions in the future as we come to more and more the one world government and who will be in charge Christ who says do God's will or the devil saying I will give all these things to you if falling down you worship me surrender your power to me and I will make you rich and this is the integrity that we must learn as Catholics to maintain God only shalt thou worship and him only shalt thou serve and so all the sins be pushed aside in the service of God. And the virtue that we live and pursue not going to be dramatic, it's not going to be rewarded, but it will be what God <coughs> speaks by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do whatever he tells you, not what the devil proposes or what the freebies may be in the process of um, survival or making the best of life. How many people have mansions drive beautiful cars, have the very best of food, unjustly. And many people suffer poorly and uh, have rags to wear, but they're honorable and virtuous. 
God sees the distinctions, and we must learn how to see with the eyes of God in our own cases, to do God's will, not to change stones into bread, but to work for the bread that God will give us in due course, and not to jump off of high buildings saying God will take care of us, or to take chances foolishly that we're virtuous, and therefore in our holiness God will keep us from evils, evil men, evil deeds. No, we bow our heads, and we do the good, and we suffer, and we continue to do the good, and that is the reward that Christ received then when the angels came and ministered to him after the temptations. So sanctifying grace then, it's a supernatural gift of God. We don't know what the supernatural is. It's a mystery. But it's a reality. And somehow it comes and nests within us if we're open to this gift of God. Not on our terms, but on His. And that's why we have presented at the beginning of Lent and for our whole life these temptations of Christ by the devil. We are in the position of Christ to fall or to respond adequately to these temptations. Grace is a supernatural gift of God bestowed on us through the merits of Jesus Christ. We don't earn it. Christ has earned it for us as the Son of God and man in his hypostatic union of two natures in one person. He is the just man, the one who is absolutely just and has earned these infinite merits for all men, provided we do our part, we respond correctly. God only shalt thou worship, him only shalt thou adore. So the first purpose in Christ's life was not to earn a living. His work was not to have fun. His work was to preach, to teach about the kingdom of God, and then to die to earn the merits that would be distributed by the Holy Ghost through his church through the centuries to come. This was his work, and he stayed with that. He wasn't distracted, he wasn't put off to other uh, areas of uh, temptations, subtle though they may have been. This is the food that I have to eat, the will of my Father, for our salvation. He came for us. We should not forget that. We should not pe let, allow people to be ignorant of that certainly not those close to us. This is the grace, this mystery of participating in the divine life of God himself. How magnificent when God himself comes in Holy Communion to you. Do you realize that the infinite God comes to you? And what a glory he bestows upon you in that participation of this union, communion with God himself as a foretaste of the eternal union that will be yours in eternity, forever. Uh, it staggers the mind. Uh, we are sort of numbed by the intensity of it all that we can't begin to get the dimensions of what the supernatural is, what the divine is, what grace is. And yet this is your greatest gift from God at baptism be lifted up to the level of God to sharing in his without just changing or destroying anything human but enhancing the human elevating it with extra powers of faith hope and charity to believe and to practice with hope the works of charity 
this is our vocation. If we are truly Catholic, and if we're not, if we've been distracted by the uh, intensity of life's burdens, obligations, responsibilities, necessities, do we lose sight of the service of God? Or do we pursue the world in what it offers, in whatever manner it offers, in the service of Satan, without realizing that we are enlisted then in the service of the devil? It's a frightening thought, but it happens. And it escapes us, unless we have that focus. Not by bread alone does a man live, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let us not tempt God, but worship him alone, and serve him only. And he said, this is why I said to you, no one can come to me unless he is enabled to do so by my Father. We call this prevenient grace. It comes before the grace that then we receive by responding. God even gives us a little shove to respond, but he doesn't force. But this is a grace, a supernatural gift. Grace is a favor, a free gift, granted to us, though we have no claim to it. The Protestants say that, we say that too. But they say we don't have to do anything further. Now, this is where we differ. We do have to do something further. We have to know, we have to learn, we have to have that faith that is filled with the teachings of the church, not the teachings we prefer, but what the church teaches us, and then that strength, that determination to live accordingly. This is virtue. And this is cooperation. And this is that service of God that Christ tells us to follow. God grants us graces because he is good, not because we deserve them. So what have we to give to God that he's not already given us first? So we're paupers, and yet he does give us the free will to choose. And this is what he asks, to serve him freely. God grants us graces for the sake of his Son, who died on the cross to earn for us these graces. We men can never merit these graces. Christ came to win us out of the separation from God, which is original sin, to bring us back to the plateau of divine grace, whereby then we can climb the rest of the way to heaven by our cooperation. We're halfway there, not all the way. All have sinned and all have need of the glory of God. These are justified freely by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ, but not with sin, sinlessly. The Holy Ghost dispenses the graces of God merited by our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he sent the Holy Ghost, to continue the work, and that's why we no longer need further books of Scripture. The Holy Ghost is the living spirit of truth in the church to teach it now and guide it infallibly. And this is the living presence of the Holy Ghost that comes into our hearts, enlightens our minds, and strengthens our wills to do good and to avoid evil. He bestows and perfects what is already earned. He fills out further. Look at our prayers, how poor they are, and yet he fills them out with his prayer. And he enhances our prayers, our little feeble efforts he perfects. In a similar manner, the sun does not make the plants, but develops what is already planted. Without the sun, the plants would die and be useless to man. So it's a cooperation. The supernatural is that which is beyond natural powers, and it is of two kinds. When the fact is beyond 
natural powers in the manner of occurrence is when a blind man instantly can see. It's a miracle. And secondly, when the fact fundamentally and entirely surpasses all powers of the natural order, as when God imparts a part, implants, or imparts a part of his life to man through the gift of sanctifying grace. We are adopted into the life, the family of the Holy Trinity. And that's the grace that we talk about. Not the miracle, but the presence, the reality, the abiding sanctification, habitual grace that stays with us unless we sin and cast it out. That's why sin is so terrible. That's why we're so concerned about sin and that which induces us or leads us into sin, the temptations, to avoid occasions of sin, just as we avoid sin itself. The assistance of the Holy Ghost is necessary. Without the help of the graces that he dispenses, with merely natural powers, we cannot do the least work to merit salvation. Without God, we are nothing. And no matter what we do, as good as we can be, unless it is God's grace attending that human goodness, the human goodness is insufficient for salvation. And that's why baptism is necessary. Put us into this mode of sanctification that then our works with the grace of the Holy Ghost and our cooperation produce merit for heaven. In order to reach heaven, we need God's grace. So we say with the apostle, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. And so when we talk about the human race, the human goodness, the accumulated efforts of man, not sufficient enough without God. And so all the bread in the world will not feed us into life everlasting unless it is the word of God that we feed ourselves on doing his holy will. By the grace of God I am what I am. I have labored more than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. That's St. Paul. There are two kinds of grace, sanctifying grace and actual grace. Sanctifying grace is that grace which confers on our souls a new life, born again. That is a sharing in the life of God himself. That is such a fantastic statement. Sharing in the life of God himself. This is what the world's looking for. It tries to find it in its own way. You read the religions of the world, you read the cultures, and you find men striving to be better than they are, to rise higher with the powers that are beyond them. And they have secret knowledge that they think is going to lead them to this power. And Christ has offered it openly to all people. No one can come to the Father except for me, in the mystical body, by baptism, being united with Christ. Only in this way can we come to God. And anything short of that, by human efforts, say the Masonic uh, program, good as it may be, is insufficient. No human being can find heaven by himself. By sanctifying grace, our souls are made holy. God loves himself for his goodness, his holiness, and he loves those who have his goodness and holiness that he's given it to and is preserved by their cooperation. He loves them. He loves us if we are good and holy and pleasing to God. It is an abiding or permanent grace which we gain by baptism and lose only by mortal sin. We'll talk about mortal sin next week. By Adam's sin, all mankind had the friendship of God, had lost the friendship of God. That is, we are born in original sin without sanctifying grace. It's not a stain, but it's an absence. Our Lord's death won back sanctifying grace for us, and it is 
granted freely at baptism. If you're not baptized, then what? You're without the grace. That's why it's important. Unless a person is born again of water and the Holy Ghost, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, cannot enter the state of grace. A soul to whom God grants sanctifying grace receives not merely a gift from God, but God himself. God himself. We will make our abode with him, Christ says. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We will come and live with him. The Holy Ghost lives in him and becomes united with him so that he receives a new life, a new nature. He doesn't work miracles. He doesn't suddenly have instant knowledge of the faith. But he has a power by which I do believe. And that power is energetic in carrying him through to doing the things he believes. <coughs> avoiding sin. St. Paul refers to this acquisition of sanctifying grace as the putting off of the old man and the putting on of the new. It is as if an old and worn man were suddenly to become a handsome young man full of vigor of life. The beauty of a soul in the state of sanctifying grace is too great for human eyes to bear. As a child said, when asked how his soul would look immediately after his confirmation, if, he could, if it could be photographed, he said, why, it would look like God. And that's the way we should understand the gift of God's grace that we preserve at all costs, even to the point of death, if necessary. What are the chief effects of sanctifying grace? The chief effects of sanctifying grace are first, to make us holy and pleasing to God, that he loves us with his own kind of love. Then, uh, when we are in possession of sanctifying grace, we are free from mortal sin. You can't have the two together. Because mortal sin is the absence of grace, just like original sin, but with the added guilt or penalty of responsibility that we ourselves, through actual sin, incur. The two then cannot dwell together. The fire of the Holy Ghost sears away all that God abhors so that we acquire God's friendship. This is how we get rid of our sinfulness. By the growth of God's love and the growth of his grace, it pushes out the shadows, the darkness, the sinfulness. And we have that power of God to cooperate successfully. Not by our own power alone, and not without our cooperation, but the presence of the Holy Ghost by the light drives away the darkness. However, through free, uh, although free from mortal sin, we do not with sanctifying grace become free from the remains of sin, so even saints feel the human inclination to sin against which the struggle is lifelong and from which we shall gain merit. This human frailty is embedded in our flesh. The spirit is willing, our Lord says, but the flesh is weak. It's embedded in our flesh and is present in our souls as a, re a result of original sin. But the presence of God drives it out and gives us the strength of God that makes us able to do things that are otherwise impossible for us as human beings. Sanctifying grace, however, although it does not cure us of the weakness of the flesh, strengthens our will, so that for us the war against sin becomes easier. The charity accompanying sanctifying grace makes us more prone to good works, more attracted to God, with minds illumined as to the folly of sin. Now, when we dwell in sin, where is the grace of God? It's diminished, and it is not as strong, and therefore we have to struggle harder against the effects of sin or temptation. Second, it makes us adopted children of God. With sanctifying grace, the Holy Ghost enters our soul. We are led by his Spirit and are therefore his children. St. Paul says, For whoever are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. 
Now you have not received the spirit of bondage so as to be again in fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by virtue of which we cry, Abba, Father, that our Father, that we say, our Father who art in heaven, our Father. The Spirit himself gives testimony to our spirit that we are sons of God. Thirdly, it makes us temples of the Holy Ghost. Sanctifying grace brings the Holy Ghost to dwell in us as in a temple. That's why we respect our bodies. The presence of God is there. We should know that by faith. And the stronger the faith, the more strong the realization. Do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? It's the same Paul. If anyone destroys the temple of God, him will God destroy. For holy is the temple of God, and this temple you are. Fourth, it gives us the right to heaven. When we are in the state of grace, sanctifying grace, we are inspired to do good works. The Holy Ghost does not sleep within us, but expands our heart with his grace and urges our will to do good. This is how you become holy. Not by your efforts, but by your cooperation with the power of God present through grace. And as we are adopted children of God, such actions become meritorious for heaven. That's why not everybody does good merits heaven. It must be with the grace of God as well. If we are children of God, we are the same, at the same time heirs and therefore have a right to his kingdom. Not an absolute right, but God said that you would have this if you do such. And if we can fulfill our obligations, we have a right, therefore, indirectly to the reward. We are sons of God, but if we are sons, we are heirs also, heirs indeed of God and joint heirs with Christ. And finally, why is sanctifying grace necessary for salvation? Sanctifying grace is necessary for salvation because it is the supernatural life, which alone enables us to attain the supernatural happiness of heaven. Sanctifying grace at death is changed into the light of glory. And by that light of glory we see God. It's the beatific vision that is the ultimate happiness that all men seek, whether they know it or not. And this is the way by which we come to it through grace, by the merits of Christ, our faith, hope, and charity through baptism that we live in our lives, avoiding sin and practicing virtue. The presence of God in the soul gives it life. When the Holy Ghost is dwelling in the soul, it is enabled to know and love God, to do supernatural works. Speaking of the gift of God, our Lord said, it shall become in him a fountain of water, springing up unto life everlasting. Without sanctifying grace, the soul is without God, and without God, the soul becomes the devil's. This is hard to reconcile, but we are separated from God. Then where are we? We're in the devil's domain. Christ came to pull us out of it. And if we don't cooperate, we will remain in it. One cannot gain any merit for heaven as long as he is not in sanctifying grace what is termed in the state of grace. For without sanctifying grace, one is an enemy of God and cannot enter his kingdom. Mortal sin makes the soul displeasing to God and thus deprives it of sanctifying grace. So all the good you do is without merit until you get back again to the state of grace through the reconciliation of confession. So make a good Lent. Realize this is the key, the idea. Do whatever he tells you. Not the devil, but Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.